Hi, I'm Michael Hawk, and welcome to Nature's Archive Podcast, where I interview some of the most interesting and creative people on the forefront of conservation, ecology, and wildlife restoration. If you have a fascination with the natural world or would like to learn how you too can make a difference, regardless of your current circumstances, this podcast is for you. My promise to you is that you'll not only learn what my guests have accomplished, but also how and why. And if you come along for this journey, I also promise that you'll learn plenty of fascinating things about the nature that surrounds us all. So give it a listen. And if you truly care about the environment and enjoy what you heard, please take a moment to subscribe, leave feedback on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and share the episode with a friend. Thank you. My guest today is Eddie Dunbar. Eddie is an entomologist, the founder and president of the Insect Sciences Museum of California, and an adjunct professor at Merritt College. With 38,000 species of insects in California alone, we need people like Eddie to help us make sense of it all. Eddie's passion is to engage the public with insects so that they can understand how they fit in our environment. Through the Insect Sciences Museum of California, Eddie promotes this engagement through numerous events such as bug camps, bio blitzes, and also online through a popular Facebook group. The museum has portable displays, a large insect collection, and provides thorough field guides to parks of the Bay Area at bugpeople.org. In fact, Eddie and his volunteers have embarked on an immense project, creating an Insects of the San Francisco Bay Area virtual field guide. Eddie's unique background, including working with the UC Berkeley Cooperative Extension and researching pesticides, among other things, allows him to uniquely engage with the public. Of course, the public often sees insects through the lens of pest control. Eddie has years of experience helping people change their views and understand the wide array of ecosystem services insects provide. In this episode, we talk about Eddie's unique journey that led to the founding of the museum, his methods and tactics for engaging people online and in person, methods to create virtual field trips using Google Earth, ISMC's projects, and how others can participate in ISMC or launch similar projects of their own. Please enjoy this interview with Eddie Dunbar. Eddie, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here. I think the best way to start would be just to jump straight into the Insect Sciences Museum of California. Can you tell me a yeah. little bit about what that is, how it got started? Well, we are mostly a virtual museum. We do have space at, at Walking Miller Park that the city of Oakland gives us for free, but we haven't done a lot with it. Most of our events are out in the field. We're doing bio blitzes and collecting uh, photographs of insects uh, mostly in the Bay Area. Our main project is writing insects of the San Francisco Bay Area, so we need photographs from here. And we're trying to engage the public in, in getting us those photographs. We do an annual bug camp. Um, that's usually up at Seichan Creek. One year we did it down in the Mojave Desert. So we're doing different events out in the field, getting people engaged about insects, and uh, also trying to create content that's location specific. So we have 62 different sites where we're photographing insects and we have people at those sites who are helping us to get insect photos and to contribute to the information online. So when you say a virtual museum, you mentioned that there's an online component, but I think you also have a portable collection and displays. Yeah. Just like any museum, you're going to have a collection. So we have what's called a virtual bug collection, which is something we take to our different events. And you really don't want people touching your bugs because insects are brittle and they'll break. So we put them in cases and we've got hundreds of cases. We've got a collection up at Merritt College. Again, there's a set that we take on the road with us. So that's our virtual bug collection. Then we have an an actual collection, which is because we're not using the facility much, it's based at my home. We've got thousands of (laughs) insects that are not processed yet. 
Uh, but that's uh, every museum has a backlog. And then uh, another thing we're engaged in is writing field guides. The, we have 62 field guides because we have a field guide for each site that you can download from our website. And ultimately, uh, the end product of having all these PDFs online is to combine them all into one PDF and have insects of the San Francisco Bay Area as a field guide. That sounds very comprehensive and like a, a multi-year sort of project. How long have you been working on that field guide? Uh, wow. So I started photographing insects when I was at UC Berkeley. That was 97 and got permission to use those photos. So I've been, it's more than 20 years. And how close are you to oh. seeing your vision <laughs> coming to fruition? We are not close. Uh, there are just so many insects in California and we never seem to be able to find a stopping point. Every time I think I've got, it, just for example, for one location, every time I think I've got what I want for the location, this new interesting bug shows up and uh, I've got to start looking up the information for that insect. Yeah, so stopping point. Wow. I don't know if there is a stopping point. I think I saw an example of a, another person who was doing a field guide for leaf miners. And his it's a PDF. It's 1,800 pages. He knows he's never going to sell it. I mean, he can sell the PDF, and I've actually bought a copy. But 1,800 pages just for leaf miners is just mind-blowing. I think that's probably Charlie Iceman. And it is. I have his okay. other book. Uh, that's actually yeah. in physical form, but I'll make sure to link to yeah. to both the PDF and the traps and signs of invert of insects. Yeah, I um, thought the PDF was easier because you could search a PDF, whereas right. a book you can't. You have to thumb through it. Well, I have to admit, I guess I, I have a little bit of a problem when it comes to physical field guides. I tend to collect mm -hmm. them. I really like the format. I like leafing through them. But you're yeah. absolutely right. The PDF is a lot more functional. And uh, and when done right, you can continue to update it as an author. So, right. <laughs> so right. I, right. that's a great method as well. Yeah. I think that this is an interesting lead-in. When I look at the general public as they start to get engaged with nature, usually I don't think people begin with insects. I think that maybe they see a deer or a bear or a sea otter, maybe a bird, you know, something mm -hmm. along those lines that's kind of their, yeah. their hook. How do you help people? I, I, who approaches you in the first place? How are they interested in, in insects to begin with? A lot of them are landscape professionals. Some of them are just, you know, gardeners. They're looking for ways to make their garden more interesting. And I, I say it's always, you know, it's great to have a bunch of flowers in the field. But if you see butterflies flying over them, you get a different, a different scent, almost a euphoria to me. But that's me. Yeah, butterflies definitely act that way as well. And I, uh, I think the thing I love about butterflies is as they're fluttering around, they look like they're on the verge of being out of control. They're just kind of um, zigzagging every every which way, but they somehow can land on that little tiny flower. Yeah, and, and yeah. it just fascinated me. Yeah, yeah. Butterflies are interesting. They have a really stressful life. I mean, they start off as an egg. They're really tiny. They're vulnerable. Then, as soon as they hatch, they've got this really strong motivation to uh, to get bigger because the smaller you are, the quicker you're going to get picked off. And then they have this really hard life cycle. So they've got to keep going through the, you know, these changes where they change in stars, they pupate, all of that is stress. And then as a butterfly, then they're, they're out, you know, being picked off by birds. So, yeah, yeah, I, I think you're right that they are um, out of control. <laughs> <laughs> My progression in engaging with nature 
started with just landscape photography and oh, then, okay. and then I started yeah. noticing some of the animals and the birds mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and through that started getting more interested in landscaping. So to your point of who you're engaging with landscaping my yard yeah. to attract more and more wildlife in the course of that, I found butterflies to be one of the easiest things to landscape for. Yeah. And if you find their larval food plant, the right plant, yeah. and they're just attracted like a magnet from your perspective, I'll, I'll dig into this a little bit more later, but um, when, when you're talking about gardening and landscaping, what are some of your base recommendations you have for people to improve their backyard habitat? Number one, plant natives. We're in one of the greatest biodiversity declines in recent history. Probably the main reason that we're losing so many different species is habitat loss. So according to a UC Berkeley researcher, 85% of the average garden in California is non-natives. Native insects, native bees, butterflies, they're a lot like kids. If they haven't tried food before, they're not likely to, to want to try it. So these insects that are here, the natives have evolved with the plants that are here. Having those native plants that they can cue on, they know that's a food source or a resource, uh, that's the most important thing. Um, number two is to reduce pesticides. A lot of pesticides are wide spectrum, which means they, they kill everything. Knowing what insect it is gives you a, a better chance of picking the right insecticide, something that's target, targeted specifically for that organism. You know, as you know, the primary focus here of this podcast is to learn a little bit about how people like yourself have found a unique way to make an impact to engage the public in environmental education or conservation, and you're doing a bit of both. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'd like to back up a little bit and inspect how all of this came to be, how you kind of connected the dots in this interest and grew the interest over time. When, when did you first realize that you were interested in insects? Was that actually your first interest or what, did you have a bit of a progression like I described earlier? Well, I, I did insects uh, beginning about at eight years old. That's when I remember getting books from the um, elementary library on ants and different, different other insects. I tried amphibians for a little while. I also did birds, but I kept coming back to insects. I was, I, what I've heard is that you tend to do what you love and you love what you do. But how I got into insects is I was, in, I was a Cub Scout and I was at camp and I was looking for bugs under rocks. One of the den mothers was a grad student at UC Berkeley in entomology. And she said, no kid, let me show you how to do it. And then she showed me, and I don't want people to do this, how to, how to peel the bark off of, a, off of a rotting log and to find the termites, find the pseudoscorpions, find the, the darkling beetles, how to sift through all of that stuff and, and get to insects I'd never seen before. So having a person who knew entomology really got me entrenched in the science. I guess one of the magical things about insects is that they're everywhere. So you can maintain an engagement yeah. all the time. It's not like looking for megafauna, you know, <laughs> looking for bears or whales or you know yeah. something like that. Yeah, I can't go on vacation with my family without getting some bugs in. And they know it's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> this interest you kept coming back to it and you were telling me earlier about your time at UC Berkeley. Oh yeah. Which yeah, sounded my... like an interesting era for you. <laughs> yeah. I have the dubious distinction of being kicked out of Berkeley twice. 
once for failing grades as a student. And then uh, I came back as an employee because I really wanted to, to learn more and was on a project and I kind of butted heads with a faculty member. So I ended up leaving as an employee too. But that was actually good because it, it gave me roots somewhere else. I was able to take the project and my ideas to Mills College. Mills College funded it really well. And then uh, when that project ended, our client was Oakland Schools. So I was able to take the project directly to Oakland Schools and work for the science department and got connected with someone who wanted to give me more money to actually form a nonprofit. And so that's what we did in 2008. So the project you're referring to is what became the Insect Sciences Museum? Yes, it yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. In that intermediate era, I understand that there's an interesting article that I'll link to as well that was in Bay Nature. And the article in Bay Nature referred to a period of time where you were working um, in, in researching mosquitoes and cockroaches. Okay, yeah. How, how did that come well, to be? I mean, what was well, that all was, about? Okay, so I was working for the uh, insecticides division, the domestic insecticides division of Clorox, which sold all of its resources to Bayer. I was only a lab tech at that point. So I was racing mosquitoes, which was really traumatic because <laughs> you had to go into the mosquito room and there were always mosquitoes loose. So I was rearing mosquitoes. It was uh, 80s Egypti. And then in an adjacent lab, I was raising cockroaches. I think like 10 different strains of German cockroaches. But then we had Australian cockroaches. We had Oriental cockroaches, American cockroaches. Anyway, tons of cockroaches. I mean, many, many, many pounds. I measured them in pounds as opposed to numbers. <laughs> yeah, that was an exciting time at Clorox. That was out in Pleasanton, an exciting time, yeah. In the insect sciences role, you're much more of an advocate for insects. How did you feel at, at that stage actually working on testing that, you know, those sorts of products? Did you, what did you learn? What did you take away from that? Working with insecticides was different. I was never used to being on the side of the spectrum where you were killing insects. It didn't bother me. It was work. I got to be close to other entomologists. I think that's what I take away was is getting to work with other people who had um, experience with insects and the love for insects. But the main part of it, there was a lot of you know labor involved, but I also got to work with numbers. So I was running stats on the the results of the mortality of the insects and got really good with working with data. And my job now is, a, is as a business analyst for the city of Oakland. So that, you know, it, it was a good uh, experience there in, in getting more knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. So you were able to make some contacts and understand that side of the equation as well. Yeah. And I yeah. think it gives you a lot of weight. When you make recommendations, you know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, yeah. And then when I worked for UC Berkeley, I was there for four years in cooperative extension. And I worked on what was called the insect hotline, where people would call up for recommendations. And we were always slanted towards the things that were least toxic. So that was the that was a good experience, getting to do recommendations and know, you know, what's good, what's not, what's being developed. This reminds me when, so, okay, I'm going to segue just a little bit. I've been doing a project since COVID hit, uh, mm -hmm. they, I'm a little bit closer to home more often. I decided I would start paying a lot more attention to my own backyard. 
And this okay. has evolved over time. So it's almost, it's a pretty much a daily practice for me to, to go out there and mm -hmm. see what I can find. And of course, you've been are, getting some awesome photos. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. As I've been doing that, I've been discovering a lot, learning a lot, learning what I don't know. I mean, there's just so much to discover in the world mm -hmm. of yeah. arthropods and insects. And when I would do a Google search on certain species, inevitably the first search results would be about how to kill the bug. You know, it'd be, oh. it'd be some uh, pesticide company or a orkin or, you know, somebody like that, that that's mm -hmm. basically positioning the insect as a pest. And yeah. when you dig deeper, you find out that, you know, oftentimes they aren't a pest. And in fact, with the right balance, they're beneficial. So I think what you're doing in all of this and having that, that wide background of, uh, that you do have is really helpful to offset some of the misinformation that's out there yeah you know, it's kind of like yeah. fear and you know like they're, they're driving fear mm -hmm. and there is a lot of misinformation out there really disinformation uh, when we had yellow pages i would go through them sometimes and they'd have a picture of an earwig with the name termite underneath it which you know is totally wrong it, it makes the homeowner worried now that they have termites. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of pest management is based on fear and a lot of misinformation about insects is based on fear. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We get people unsolicited coming to our door, not all that uncommonly saying like, Hey, we're in the neighborhood. We're here to, you know, help control your pests and your spiders. And it's like, well, I, I don't have a problem with spiders. <laughs> they're, you know, they're helping me out. Let's oh, leave them spiders, alone. right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The media has just created this hysteria by spiders and has been taken advantage of by pest management professionals. I've learned how to tailor my Google searches so that I'm searching for the scientific name and then I'm more likely to get a scientific background on that insect. And then if you sometimes add the word university, mm. then you get something that's really authoritative. That's a really practical tip. I hadn't thought of that one. All right, so we've traced your story as to how you got interested in insects, how it progressed. And I think when you were at Berkeley the first time, you were actually taking some entomology courses there as well. Yeah, yeah. And when I went back as an employee, I took more. And then you were telling me as well, on, on top of this, so you've, you've collected this sort of diverse array of knowledge through, through pra practical experience, through working Clorox, through mm -hmm. coursework at Berkeley, through engaging with the public. Mm -hmm. And you're actually teaching a course as well. That is the insect identification and management course at Merritt College in Oakland. It's part of the Peralta Community Colleges system. And I think it's four units. It's going to be done online this fall. So this is going to be a new challenge to me. I, I use technology a lot, but we've got 29 students signed up so far. And that's going to be a new thing, trying to coordinate with 29 people online. I do want to do field stuff. I want to get us out into gardens. I want to get us out into the landscape. That's really the best way to engage with insects. One of the requirements of the course is to create an insect collection. And a lot of people just don't think that they can handle insects. You know, I mean, physically handle, literally handle insects. But we've got to get them to where, if you're a landscape professional, you need to know what to do with an insect that somebody brings you in a jar. So I suspect that if you aren't allowed to get together due to the physical distancing requirements that, that we have right now, are you going to have people just go off on their own and share through Zoom or through you know some sort of other online method? Well, that, that's another challenge. I want to be able to show insects, but 
with a regular camera, you can't do that. So I'm looking at some cameras that I can connect to Zoom and you know, show the insects and how to pin them, how to uh, identify the different body parts and the characters for recognition. Yeah, it's a challenging world right now to convert what was, you know, it's second nature when you're in person to yeah. something that's transferable online. So let's actually get a little bit back more into the Insect Sciences Museum. Um, you, you touched on a bunch of different things in the intro and sort of over mm-hmm. the course of the discussion from the uh, the virtual nature and portable nature and the events that you have. How is it funded and operated? Is it, is it um, all volunteers? It's all volunteers. We don't have any staff. Um, if there's staff, it's me. And I'm probably doing the lion's share of the funding, but we do have some uh, angel donors. And if you want to make a donation, you can go to bugpeople.org. And you can't miss the donation <laughs> section. <laughs> yeah, but we're all volunteer. Uh, we have a board that's got five people on it. We're looking for more board members, so I'll be putting out an ad pretty soon uh, to recruit people with different backgrounds. So bugpeople.org, I'll include a link to that as well in the show notes. Part of the virtual nature of this endeavor is you have a Facebook group as well. Yes, we do. We have 1,368 members as of this morning. I think when I joined, which was only maybe three months ago that, that I discovered this, you were maybe just a shade below a thousand or around a thousand. It seems like it's growing really fast. <laughs> Did you notice that? I, I, I've said that to our board members. I kind of took a, not a hiatus, but I stopped attending and participating. But beginning with the shelter in place, I began participating more and the numbers have just, yeah, skyrocketed since about March. It's a lot of fun. It's, it seems to be very California centric, but there's a few folks that occasionally come in from elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, yeah is there a requirement from... to be California? Well, there's questions that I ask that the Facebook page asks when people join, you know, where, where do you live? Uh, what is your interest in entomology? And those are ways that we filter people out. Um, we don't want to filter people out, but if one, if you're not connected to insects in some way, you may not have that much to contribute. I mean, it's it's great to come in and learn, but we want you to be able to participate in the conversation. It has been a lot of fun, and there's some great photographers in the group. There's some true experts like yourself and others that, that contribute. And yeah. uh, I, I like the fact that it is not overly academic in that yeah. like I feel comfortable posting silly questions like, yeah. Hey, I saw this weird thing. <laughs> I, I think it was done by an insect. Anybody have any ideas what's going on here? And, and, uh, yeah. and it inevitably leads to an interesting discussion and, and learning. Yeah. And, and oh, maybe, wow. maybe it's not insects. Like, like I have one going on right now where, uh, I thought maybe there was a grass carrying wasp doing something, but it might actually just be how the flower matures in, in mm-hmm. what I'm seeing. And, and, but nobody knows. Yeah. So there's so much to discover. We've got a good spectrum of people. So we've got people who are, who are really deeply steeped in, in the science of entomology. Then you have amateurs, and I love amateurs because they have passion. And no question is a dumb question. You know, you know that. But some of the questions just evoke so much passion from people. Like if we start talking about brown recluse spider, which most real entomologists know does not, is not here in California, fewer than 10 specimens since the 40s. They're not here. That will get people really excited, and you'll see posts that go on for days. Yeah, but the group is great. Like I said, we have a wide spectrum of people, so 
people don't shouldn't feel ashamed about posting something that they have questions about. And I'm getting good information. There are people there who who know more than I do. And they there should be people like that there. They're helping the group out. And those people are not hesitant about helping out. Mm-hmm. They'll help you with your insect photo. They can feel that you you have some hesitation. They'll they'll make it humorous and then you're you're more comfortable. I think that a lot of that comes from how you, at least from what I've seen in the few months I've been on that group, how you manage the group. And uh, I've been really impressed with the approach that you take. For example, when I was first starting out, I I posted one or two identifications that I was, you know, I don't know, maybe 95% certain. And I think you saw them and and had some questions, but you didn't do it in an accusatory way. It was more like, (laughs) how how did you come to that conclusion? Or, you know, what allowed you to differentiate this from that? And yeah. uh, it really opened my eyes. It helped me understand that it's not like birds where mm-hmm. you can usually get to species. You can usually identify a species pretty easily with a good photo of a bird, usually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With insects, probably what, more often than not, you can't get to species level? Not with a photograph. It's very, I mean, there's some things that are just common, like a certain lady beetles. You know that that's what it is. You don't have to key it out. But there's some things that you need to see structures that are not in the photograph. There's some that you have to dissect in order to see the genitalia. Uh, and then there's some that you can only get IDs to species level through DNA. With 38,000 species in California, nobody knows all of them. And you mentioned Charlie Eisman earlier in his leaf miner research. And I think he's he's discovered awesome. multiple new species. And it just shows that... You know, even what we think might be a unique individual species, if we looked a little closer, we might discover, no, actually, this is different. <laughs> this is something right. else altogether. We need eyes on the insects. So that approach that you have of kind of being nurturing to people in the group and help steering them and, and creating this open environment, is that something that you've cultivated over the years or is just sort of a natural behavior that, that you have? It is. I, I would say it's natural. I've always been kind of a nurturer. My first jobs were in, as a public service representative. So, so I know how to um, how to talk to people to not get them too excited. That's critical when it comes to outreach and environmental education. It's often so intimidating for people. There's the human nature aspect as well. When I think you alluded to it a little bit with the brown recluse discussions. Yeah. Oh like, my like God. People are just, <laughs> uh, it's human nature. You think you know. And for some people more than others, it's hard to hear otherwise. It's hard to come to terms that there's a lot that that you don't know. And by making that sort of a nurturing process, I think it keeps people engaged. It doesn't turn them off. I'm sensitive to how people feel. And I want people to be engaged in the science. I want them to come with their questions because I I love answering them. And then uh, insects is a way for me to connect with people. Sometimes when I do a presentation, I'll start off by saying, uh, tell me your insect story. Who has an insect story? <laughs> and then that really gets them in. And it's not about, you know, I'm coming to learn from him, but I have something to offer too. That's a really great tip. And I'm going to make a mental note of that uh, <laughs> to uh, to use that method. Because everybody likes to tell their story. And yeah, they and do. It's just a, a, such a great way to step function the engagement from small to large right away. Mm-hmm. 
do you have any other suggestions as to how to keep people on that learning curve? So like you mentioned, for example, you get some gardeners that maybe your landscape designers, maybe that engage with you initially. I suspect if you're set up at an environmental event where there's a number of groups perhaps presenting and you have a lot of general public coming through that you may get some people that stop and, and take a look at your collection. How do you help people continue that progression of learning? I try to see people where they are. If you're a gardener, I know that there are challenges that you're going to have. Knowing what plants you have, knowing what kind of insect problems you're having is a way to connect. And then I guess I'm setting myself up as an authority for that. And they know that there's a person they can come to. I have friends on Facebook who I've made through entomology, and they talk about their family entomologist, like they do their, their family doctor. So they know that they have this person they can go to and get an insect answer. Oh, I know. I, I can find out from Eddie. Let me ask Eddie and I'll get back to you. But that's not just me. That's, that's anybody who has an interest in entomology. I'd like to ask about how you're adapting to life with COVID. And, you, and you've touched on a few aspects with the class you're teaching. But I, I'm constantly looking for the bright side, the positive side of all of this, because I think that this pandemic has forced us all to rethink how we do things in a lot of different ways. And by going through that process, we're finding some new and unique ways to engage or to adapt how we work. What have you discovered so far? Well, being at home has helped me quite a bit. I, as you know, I work three different jobs. <laughs> so I, I work for the city of Oakland, you know, nine to five job. Um, I have a really high public contact position one of the things I do is I run a technology learning center. We have learners coming in all the time using the computers. I've been asked to work from home. And the other part of what I do is a lot of IT support. Not having the laptops in front of me and having to, to communicate with people on the phone has been a really different. But what it's helped me to do is to be at home and to manage all of the different parts of my life better. So I can finish my, my job at 4.30 and then from 4.30 to the evening, be on the, in the Facebook group, answering questions, getting people engaged. It's made my life easier to manage. And I think we're going to see that a lot as people who have been at home have, been, have gotten used to being able to manage all of the different parts of their lives. And if we go back or when we go back to our work sites, we're going to lose something. I can identify with that. I've been able to get to a place where there's a better balance between all of the demands that exist. And as a result, I can contribute more to efforts like this podcast. Mm -hmm. Where do you see ISMC going in the future? This is a little bit of a cloudiness with respect to COVID as to you know some of the events or bio blitzes or other things that you've engaged in in the past and when that might be able to start up. But assuming we get back to normal, you know, how do you see it progressing over time? Well, right now what we're trying to do is reorganize our board. We need people who have more subject matter expertise in the different taxa, the different types of insects. I know enough to get by, but there are experts who are helping us out. I want to be in the community. I want to be back in the parks. I want to be back in the um, wilderness areas again getting photographs, getting people out there, getting familiar with how to observe and work with insects. I want to support more groups that want guides for their area, that want more knowledge 
about the insects in their area. And then I'm seeing a value in doing stuff online. I did a presentation last week, which was in Google Earth, and it was pretty awesome. What I would do is click on you know, a feature in the landscape that I looked at, and then the photographs that I'd taken of the insects or other arthropods associated with that feature would pop up. So it was a virtual insect hike, and I'd like to do more of that. So using different technologies to engage the public, I think, is one of the ways we're going to go. We need more people with that background. Your approach to the virtual insect hike is really unique. So I'm engaged in a number of different groups and monitor others and see what they're doing right now. And there's been some virtual bird tours and Mm -hmm. virtual hikes and and things like that. I haven't seen anyone use Google Earth in the way that that you used it for your presentation. It's usually just a lot of videos and narration. I, I like that approach because then anytime you can go and explore at your own leisure. Right. You mentioned before the recording about the use of iNaturalist. I've, I've spent a little bit of time over the last few months acclimating to it myself and even made a couple of uh, getting started blog posts to hopefully help people not make the same mistakes I made as I started. Okay. I know you've seen value in mm-hmm. iNaturalist. How do you see that in helping advance what you're doing? Well, it helps a little bit. We use iNaturalist for getting identifications and for knowing what's in an area. So if I go into a a park, I know that this insect is there and it's associated with this kind of bush. So making those connections before I get to a location is really helpful. Getting identifications for things that I've had for years. I had a spider that I took a picture of 16 years ago and just got an identification today. So iNaturalist is a big help. There's value in us publishing our information to iNaturalist. And then I spend a lot of time going through helping other people with their identifications. Sometimes it's just something I learned that day. And I say, oh, this is the character. And I go through and I find all the things that are unidentified and and identify them. I I think it's great. It's not great as social media, but it's a great place to to go and get help. One of the things I kind of regret uh, is that we can't easily use the photos that are there not because of privacy or licensing or anything like that. The photographs that I need for our project have to be the original photograph with the metadata still embedded in them because how we manage, rename our photos, how we create our field guide is all based on the metadata. So we get photos directly from people when we can. That metadata, does it need to include GPS coordinates or is it time and date enough? really time and date and then by the camera information we can we can sometimes figure out who the author is so things like that there's so many parts of metadata that are important to have in your photographs for the way that we manage our stuff um, we, we we've just got to get the original photos is there anything in particular that you're looking for that you just haven't been able to get the right photo of that that you want to make a call out for come Maybe on somebody out there will know <laughs> There's lots of those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and not only that. Okay, so we're doing guides for a specific location. So the insect that should be there, we may not have photographed. We may have it at another location. So, yeah, we need a good representation from that location. And you want it from that location because there might be a regional variance or because you don't know? No, it's because we want all of the photographs 
in that guide to be from that location. Okay. So you're, you're yeah. staying very pure to the location. We are. Right. Have you had anyone reach out to you saying, Hey, I want to start something like you're doing, but say for upstate New York or, you know, some other location. No, not from another location. We had, I met somebody in San Rafael one day who said that she was going to start something called wild Oakland. And she, she, she actually did. I helped her to get connected because I know city government here. I knew who the people to talk to were, who the naturalists were, what the, the facilities she should visit and, and, what other resources that that was one person who contacted us and, and really got a good thing going they've now evolved into a group called the california center for natural history which i'm i'm a donor on that group and then we have our virtual field guide which we take into a certain level but there's this guy <laughs> in is it out annual borrego way down south it's one of the state parks he took our virtual field guide and just made a whole program out of it. So I think some of our, our ideas are good ideas and people, yeah, they are using what we have. Do you have any suggestions for anyone who might be listening that perhaps says, Hey, this, this is something like, you know, I'd like to do something like this in my area. How, how would they get started? Well, one of the things we do is support people in their, their area. So if you're say in San Jose and you want to create a field guide of the insects in your area, Get us those photographs. We already have the stuff written for it. It's in our metadata. We can embed it into your photograph and use that to generate a field guide for your area or you know something personal for you. As long as we can get the photographs. And our goal is to get photographs of insects in California. We'll help you to make something that you can use. Very cool. I'll be interested maybe in chatting a little bit more later <laughs> to, okay. to see what we can do. Earlier, we started talking a bit about what homeowners can do to improve their own backyard habitat. And that, uh, you know, anyone who's listened to the episodes I've published so far, I think every episode I work this theme in at some point because yeah, I did a little bit of research a while ago and found out that turf grass, people have lawns and turf grass is in the U.S. taking up as much area, physical area as the state of Florida and when I look at turf grass, I, I see it as problematic. It's a monoculture and too much pesticide is used and, you know, all, all the things that you can easily point at. So anyway, that's a big area of focus for me is you know, how do we improve upon that state? So, of course, maybe reducing a lawn, adding the native plants, reducing pesticide helps. I think there's also an element of how do you maintain your environment? And as we record this, it's you know, August, early August. So we're getting into mid late summer and autumn coming soon. There's probably some things we need to consider in terms of like, when do you prune your trees or cut back your shrubs or pull up your vegetables that are done for the season? Do you have any suggestions in terms of seasonal related maintenance that, that people should be looking at to, you know, help with their own little habitat? To native bees, our landscapes, look like the Hiroshima bomb went off. They're used to seeing things that make sense to them. But when 85% of what you used to have is no longer there, you're in stress. Uh, your numbers are gonna be in decline. Not having plants that you're used to getting resources from, that's nectar, pollen, different fibers, using the plant for, for nesting, uh, tunneling into the twigs, those are things that native bees do. And when we landscape and don't take into consideration 
the life cycle of bees, those bees go in decline. And when they go decline in the area, they can go extinct in that area. When it happens over and over, over wide areas, the bees go regionally extinct and they can eventually go completely extinct. If you do a search for beethebeauty.pdf, it comes up as my first link. It's an outline of 10 top tips for pollinator-friendly gardening with photographs of native bees and explanations of what to do to attract those bees. One of the things that I've started to realize recently is that the same problem that we have with habitat decline is the same problem that we have with loss of habitat for, for people. We have a huge homelessness issue in the United States, and it's kind of paralleled with what we're seeing with insects. We're losing habitat for insects. So the same disregard that we have for insects is the same disregard we have for one another. You see the parallel there, yeah. All right, so why don't we wrap up? I'd like to ask a few short questions. I consider this sort of uh, tips and tricks <laughs> that, okay. uh, that you might have. And, and one is, you know, do you have any books or uh, field guides or other resources that you found to be influential to you that, that you like to recommend? Well, I like to find the field guides that are specific to a group of taxa. There's a great field guide. We talked about the one on leaf miners. There's another great one on things that are regionally specific. There's insects of the Pacific Northwest. I found a lot of insects in that book that I've not seen in other California books. Then there are a couple of good California beetle books. There's a moss of Western North America with good photographs. Probably the best book that I would recommend is something by Jerry Powell out of UC Berkeley. It's called California Insects. The last revision, I think, was about 97, but there's a new one I understand is coming out pretty soon. Uh, have you heard about it? I did, actually. So the that whole series of California naturalist books, I, I have a spider's one here, actually, right next to me. They're called California Natural History Guides. Uh -huh. And uh, I'm, I'm constantly looking to see what's new coming out from that series. And I, I think maybe this month it was supposed uh -huh. to come out. I'll have to double check that. Yeah, so California Insects is by UC Press. The last one, I think, was about 97. But I understand that Joyce Gross supported the publication of this one with her photographs. There's, oh, there it is. I can actually see a link for it. It's out. Oh, it is in the California Natural History series. Oh, that's great. I remember when I was getting started, I, I had bird field guides and tree field guides and flower field guides. And I was like, oh, there must be some good insect field guides out there. So I just bought a general one, like insects of North America or something like yeah. that. I, I guess it's good to get a rough idea of the different taxa and kind of like what the size and shape of things are out there. But if, mm -hmm. if you intend to use a book, a generalized book like that of all insects of North America, I think your hit rate is going to be like one in 25, if even that, you know, that mm -hmm. you can actually find the, the species. Um, so I think that's a good tip. It's like if you can get into a specific taxa and a specific region, then at least you have a fighting chance. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, one of the first things when I was on the insect hotline is when I'd get an insect ID request, I'd ask, where did you see it? So that where it is tells you a lot about what it could be. What Jerry Powell writes in previous, I don't know if it's in the current one, what he writes is that the reason he wrote the book is that when he was growing up, there were recommendations that you go out and collect 
a cecropia moth and raise it to adulthood. Well, there are no cecropia moths in California. So a lot of the books that were written were written on the East Coast. Having a regionally specific book is important, and that's why we do field guides for our different areas. What have you found, again, sort of in the media resources, you know, other than field guides that have helped people engage a little bit more or, or uh, cultivate that interest to the next level? There are a lot of good videos on YouTube. The important thing to do is to get one that is university-based or that's a master gardener or an authoritative uh, video. Things on identifying insects. Uh, there's information on how to collect and mount insects. There are good videos on how to photograph insects. I, I highly recommend YouTube for doing some research. Do you have any favorites that you would be able to pass along? Yeah, I actually I've been thinking about putting these into the Facebook group and just kind of having a, there's something called a watch party you can do, but mm -hmm. just to get feedback from people about what they think about the video. There's a guy out there called the Bug Hunter. And what he does is he goes to an area, he says, I'm going into a forest today. And then he goes and, you know, tips over logs and looks into decaying logs and just finds all kinds of stuff. And then he explains these are the kinds of insects that you're going to find here. He did one for the desert. He's engaging and very informative. So there was a podcast recently, the uh, In Defense of Plants podcast. And mm -hmm. uh, they actually had a couple entomologists on. And they mm -hmm. had recently discovered that in decaying trees, like tree stumps that are like hollowed out logs or uh, are perhaps still even upright, that there's an entire ecosystem in there. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. They discovered several new species that seem to never even leave that little area or uh, perhaps not new species, but a new interconnection that uh, how important it was to have these decaying tree stumps for certain insect species. And I thought that was fascinating. And, and, and you mentioned the looking inside of logs and lifting them up. Uh, I'll yeah. link to that podcast as well. Uh -huh. uh, it was just, okay. just out a couple of weeks ago. It's very interesting. Yeah, there are a lot of networks we don't even know about. Yes, and, and this was also a very regionally based discussion. Uh, I think the, the two entomologists they had were in Florida. And as you might imagine, they talked a lot about mosquitoes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, yeah. there's probably a parallel here yeah. in California. And just so many areas ripe for research and investigation and study. Yeah, Florida's doing awesome work. I thought about doing a master's program there. I don't have a science degree. So it would be good to get a science degree that kind of backs up what I do. All right. So perhaps then to wrap things up a little bit, you've, you've mentioned a number of ways that people can engage with you. Do you want to just summarize how else people can follow you, engage with ISMC or you personally or some of your projects? I want to see your bug photos. So if you have insect photos, you can send them to my email address, which is eddie at bugpeople.org. Or post them in our Facebook group, which is, if you search for ISMC, the group should come up. But if not, it's Insect Sciences Museum. Uh, find the group. The page is okay, but the group is better because there are people, not just me, who want to see your photos and who are anxious to identify them. <laughs> so I'll absolutely be sure to link to those. Okay, Eddie, thank you so much for all the time you spent today. I think it's been a great discussion. We covered a lot of ground. And uh, I hope maybe in the future we'll be able to chat again. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for letting me participate and then helping me to get the word out about insects. We live in a world where sound bites dominate and true understanding is shrinking. Nature's Archive podcast digs a little bit deeper, hoping to help the world understand nature just a little bit more. 
I hope that this podcast has planted a seed of interest that will grow into something special for you. I record, produce, edit, and publish a show by myself as a personal passion. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and then please turn around and share this episode with a friend or a family member that you think might like it. I'm not asking for money or donations, just a gift of sharing. Thanks for your support. You can also follow me on Instagram at Nature's Archive or Facebook, also Nature's Archive. In addition to sharing information about podcasts at those locations, I also share some of my photography and some short explanations of what I'm seeing. Lastly, if you have any suggestions for guests or topics for me to cover, please email me at naturesarchivepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. And one last word, I want to make sure to give credit to the music that you hear in the podcast. The opening song is called Fearless First by Kevin McLeod, and the closing song is called Beauty Flow, also by Kevin McLeod. You can find his work at incompetech.filmmusic.io.